0: Our topic is, what is worship? What is worship? What does it mean? How do we define it? And our text will be Psalm 150. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty firmament. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the flute. The lute and harp, praise him with the timbrel and dance, praise him with stringed instruments and flutes, praise him with loud cymbals, praise him with clashing cymbals. And that's all reference to the Levitical work in the temple. But let everything that has let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Hebrew hallelujah. The worshiping of the true God, the true and living God, Yahweh. through Jesus Christ, is one of the most important things that Christians must do. might even be the most important thing we do. Obviously, we have to believe in Christ first. We find the saints approaching Yahweh throughout, uh, through worship, throughout the whole Bible. We encounter Cain and Abel. Uh, Abel's making an offering, a burnt offering, and of course burnt offerings uh, had to be done to pray to Yahweh. You had to approach Yahweh through Christ, of course. Yet how many Christians today can give a full, precise meaning of this word? Now, I acknowledge it's very broad, as we'll see. We're going to look at the different words used and the meanings. Uh, But how many can give a precise definition? Now, most know that it has something to do with praising God, and that's quite obvious from the psalm we just read, Psalm 150. Others argue that all of life is worship, and end up watering down the term to simply mean service or obedience. Now, one of the, as we'll see in a moment, one of the ways you can translate words for worship is service. The special priestly divine service in the temple, or the tabernacle by the priests, and of course it's taken up by Paul and others and used for Christian service in general. And we'll look at that. Does it refer to all of life? In order to understand what worship really is, we should be, do well to look at all the various terms used to describe it and all the parts of worship before we come to a precise definition. So we're going to look at how the Bible defines it. We're going to look at the biblical terms used, and then we're going to look at all the parts of worship, because worship is quite broad. There's a lot of elements. There's prayer. There's praise. Preaching is considered a part of worship listening to the word of God or reading the word of God as part of worship. So there's all these parts or elements of worship that help define what it really is. So it's not simply singing unto God, although that's a critical part of it. In addition, we will need to note the differences between worship in the Old Testament and worship in the New Testament. There are many things they did back then that we don't do today. We don't burn incense. We're not supposed to use musical instruments. That was a priestly thing in the temple. We don't Uh, have burnt offerings and blood sacrifices before we approach God in worship. We don't need to because Christ, the perfect sacrifice, has come and he's already accomplished that once and for all. uh, We don't need that. We approach God through Christ and we'll look at that. So there are many areas that we need to study. Let's look first at the important biblical terms used to describe worship. It's a good way to start. Let's look at how the Bible defines worship. Number one. The most common Old Testament word for worship is shakah, shakah, which refers to bowing down, falling down, or prostrating oneself before God. The bowing down of the knee is one of the postures for prayer in the Bible, the other, of course, is standing with arms lifted up. Uh, in the Bible, we don't never see people sitting in prayer. They're either bowing, prostrating themselves, or standing with their, uh, often with their arms out, outstretched. And it indicates that to come to Yahweh in worship, we acknowledge that he is the only true God, and we give him homage, honor, and praise as his creatures saved by grace. So it's an outward symbol of an inward heart attitude of humbling ourselves and acknowledging who God really is. Now the New Testament counterpart of this word, counterparts are gonu and gonopeteo, which has the same basic range of meaning. The bending of the knee or a full prostration in in worship signifies humility and abasement. For we were guilty, unworthy, condemned sinners. But we've been redeemed by the sacrificial blood of Christ. And then in the book of Revelation, you see that example where they take their crowns, which have been given to them by God through Christ, and they cast them at the feet of the Lamb. The use of kneelers in church. I was raised a Roman Catholic. We all had little padded kneelers. If you're a Protestant, you probably don't, unless you're maybe Lutheran or, well, Episcopal. Appalians have them. Uh, I have no problem with having kneelers in a church. Uh, Presbyterians generally just stand when they pray, but I have no problem with kneelers. I think it's a good idea. You know, if you can afford it, and you've got a church, and you can afford to buy pews and all that. It comports with the root meaning of these words. The inner attitude, of course, must fit the gesture, which is humility, submission, respect, honor, dependence, and adoration. Much of modern worship with its rock groups, drama groups, and comedian, non-exegetical preaching does not comport well with this word. I'll never forget, we were driving uh, home from California, this was many years ago, and we picked up a guy out of Chicago who had a megachurch, and I I don't remember who he was, and his preaching was exceptionally uh, entertaining and lively and funny and yet you could listen to this guy for 2 or 3 hours and you would learn virtually nothing about the bible other than a few you know slogans our modern word worship by the way <coughs> comes from the old english word <coughs> worship which has the sense of worth, ship. It recognizes the worthiness, excellence, dignity, and infinite perfections of God, and therefore it gives him the homage, honor, respect, and praise that he deserves. So we worship the true God Yahweh, and we. Uh, serve him, we worship him, because he deserves it. In Revelation, we read this, and this is um, 4, 10 to 11. The 24 elders fall down before him, who sits on the throne and worship him, who lives forever and ever. So they prostrate themselves before God and, of course, the Lamb. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So obviously no false gods are worthy to receive honor. They deserve to be crushed, ground into powder, and cast into the sea. Our political leaders don't deserve glory, honor, and power in that way. But the triune God and Jesus, the divine human medi- mediator, are worthy to receive such honor and power and glory. Number two. So that's the first word. Another word commonly used for worship in Scripture is praise. Praise. And we just saw that repeated over and over in 100, Psalm 150, which is poetic metaphor, when it talks about worms and birds and creatures, everything in the world praising God, showing that He's worthy, He deserves it. The Hebrew word is halal, which refers to celebrating or glorifying God, usually in song. It appears most often in the New Testament. Uh, well, it appears most often in the Old Testament in the Book of Psalms. Uh, 24 times, where it means to sing praise to God. The Hebrew name for the book of Psalms is literally praises. God has given us a hymn book in the middle of our Bibles, and he calls it praises. And it's for praising God. Now, it contains prayers, it contains statements of doctrine about God, it contains prophecies, all sorts of things. But instead of saying, well, it can't refer to uh, what we should sing in church, which is what people say, we the logical thing is to say our worship should be more intellectual and uh, broad in its definition than simply uh, these, simple, these campfire ditties that we hear today. The word halal is the source of the word hallelujah, which means praise the Lord. The Greek equivalent hallelujah is found four times in the book of Revelation, 19.1, 3, and 4. <clears throat> the focus is on honoring, glorifying, and exalting God through speaking or singing. Revelation 19.1. After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, "Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. We praise God for who he is, his attributes, infinitely holy, infinitely righteous, all-powerful, all-knowing, merciful, loving. And we praise God for his redemptive acts in history and his special providence. In praise, we celebrate the nature and character of God, as well as the salvation that he has achieved through his only son, Jesus Christ. And we saw that, we see that frequently in the Psalms, where... God is praised for his attributes, for who he is, He's worthy of praise, and then it talks about his redemptive acts. If it wasn't for him, if it wasn't for Christ, we'd all go to hell. We'd all be, we'd all be uh, completely blind and slaves of Satan. How would you like to be like these Democrats who worship abortion, which is murder, and socialism, which is theft, and whose whole lives are lived in vanity and fruit, fruitlessness. In satanic bondage. How would you like to be that? Well, thank God he saved us, so we don't follow that. This word is usually associated with the element of singing, even though it applies to prayers and public confessions. You read prayers, they got praise in it. You see public confessions in Scripture where people are speaking praise. Therefore, we should not be surprised that praise is often mingled with prayer and thanksgivings. In 1 Chronicles 29, uh, 10-12, David said before all the assembly, and um, I think he's happy because the, uh, the temple is going to be built. Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory. The victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. So we see great similarities between the historical books the book of Psalms, and of course the book of Revelation and the New Testament. Now number three. The most frequent word used for worship in the New Testament is proskuneo. And the root of this term meant to kiss and was associated with bowing down in homage in the ancient world to pagan deities. When speaking of worshiping God or Christ, it refers to worship with an emphasis on reverence and homage. Okay, we see these words are closely related, but there's different words and we need to know what they say. One worships God out of a love and reverence toward him, a thankfulness, and what he has done in behalf of his people. In John's Gospel, 420-24, to where Jesus encounters the Samaritan woman, Such worship is connected with the Holy Spirit and is revealed truth. Those who worship me must worship me in spirit and in truth. And, of course, people debate what it means in spirit, but it refers to spiritual worship. It doesn't doesn't simply mean in your heart. It refers to the Holy Spirit. True worship, or worship prescribed by the Holy Spirit speaking in Scripture, is what real worship is. It's not what man makes up, it's what God tells us to do. Although pros kunain originally focused on a visible, concrete act or gesture of obeisance to God, the focus of Scripture is on a true heart reverence and love that leads to the lips praising God in confession or inspired song. Hebrews 13:15, Ephesians 15, 5, 19, Colossians 3.16 and, of course, James 13. Is anyone married? Let him sing psalms. Don't be drunk with wine, Paul says in, in, Philipp, in uh, Ephesians and Colossians. But be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing to the Lord in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And, of course, those three titles are found in the book of Psalms and then refer to the book of Psalms. In spiritual songs... And then number four, a word that is used primarily for the cultic or ceremonial aspect of worship is latio, and the noun is latria, and the Hebrew word is Abod. Now these words originally, the root, refers to things like cultivating the soil, working in your garden, building a house, they refer to work but in the context of worship refer to religious service. You know, what the priests do with the sacrifices and so forth. Now, a word closely related to teo is trurgia That's where we get our word liturgy. Which in the main refers to the public function or more particularly sacred ministrations. The priests at the tabernacle and later the temple performed liturgies and ceremonies for the worship of God. And when you talk about like an Episcopal church where they have a prayer book and it's called their liturgy. G.W. Bromley writes this. (coughs) The cultic use is predominant in the Greek Septuagint. Of the hundred or so instances of the verb, only a very few are non-religious. And the same is true of the 40 examples of the noun. The object of liturgy is either God in person or his tabernacle, temple, altar, or name. In particular, both verb and noun are used for the particular services rendered by the priests and the Levites. The priestly functions are liturgy or liturgies. (coughs) The words leiturgeo, the verb, or leiturgia do not have the same importance in the New Testament as they do in the Greek Septuagint. In fact, the verb occurs only three times and the noun six times. End of quote. And of course, that's going to be in the book of Hebrews. In the main, the book of Hebrews. Most of them are looking back at the Old Testament priesthood. Like let to, let to uh, oh, this word has both a broad and narrow meaning. <clears throat> when it is not used the priestly ministrations, for example, Hebrews 8.6 and 9.21, it refers to Paul's sacrificial ministry or service, Philippians 2.17, or the ministration or service of the saints one to another. Second Corinthians 9.12, Philippians two. 230, uh, which, of course, refers to the saints' ministration or service toward Paul. So that, that word, ministering to one another, or ministering to Paul, is the same Greek word as we find in the Greek Septuagint, referring to the priest's work in the temple and the tabernacle. These words refer to work such as cultivating the soil but in the context of worship refer to religious service. The work involved for cultic worship or serving God in general as well. For example, Psalm 72, 11. All nations shall serve him. All nations. It's a prophecy. All nations will serve him. Well, how's that going to happen? Well, it's going to happen after Christ comes and the gospel goes to all nations. The word can be used generally for our covenantal obedience, our service toward God, or specifically for the religious work of the priestly ministry and the work of, New, of the New Testament ministry. In the book of Hebrews, 8, 5, and thirteen ten, 10, is used to describe cultic service, while leturgeo refers to the specific ministry of the priests. So it has a narrow meaning, the liturgy of the temple, and a broader meaning, our service or ministry one to another as Christians, our service and ministry uh, to those who have authority over us in the church. For example, Paul. The word is used to describe Anna's serving of God with prayers and fastings, Luke 2.37, and Paul's service to God in preaching the gospel, Romans nine. In Romans twelve one, here we have the broad sense. It is used to describe a life fully lived in consecration to Christ, a life dedicated to covenantal obedience or service. Now here's the here's the big question, because there's been Reformed people that have written articles. Uh, the Reformed Baptist scholar, I forgot his name. He just died a couple years ago. Uh, really good scholar wrote an article called All of Life is Worship, basically. And uh, Norman Shepherd, who taught at Westminster Seminary, took that position. All of life is worship. Well, there's a sense in which that's true. All of life is service. If we define the word worship in a broad sense uh, or as service, yes, that's true. But we need to make a distinction between how the word is used in a narrow sense and how it's used in a broad sense. Does the general use of this term mean that all of life should be regarded as worship, which is a popular concept today? And the answer is no. For we have seen that its meaning is determined by the context. You don't take how the word is applied in a general way, in a a, a different context, and apply it to what is specific. We come together on on the Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath, to worship God in a narrow, specific sense. Which, contain, which consists of the elements or parts of religious worship that are uh, delineated in the Bible. There's a clear distinction between the general service of life, our discipleship under Christ, we pick up our cross and follow Christ daily, our progressive sanctification, our covenantal obedience, our covenantal faithfulness to God, Yes, all of your life should be sacrificed and dedicated to Christ. And, of course, there's the service involved in public worship, which is the narrow meaning. Let's not confuse the narrow with the general. The word has two different uses in Scripture, very clearly, in both the Old and New Testament, a very narrow use and a very broad use. Everything we do in life is to glorify God and honor his moral commandments, Our whole life must be governed by the biblical world and life view, by the divine imperatives of Scripture, by the moral law. Right? We live for Christ. We serve Christ with our minds and bodies. But public worship, where we enter the presence of God corporately in a special way, it's unique. It's unique. It is regulated by certain elements of worship and each of these elements have different rules prescribed by scripture. For example, women can plant tomatoes, they can drive a car, they can shoot bows and arrows, they can ride it, they can fly a plane, but only ministers of the gospel who are men are allowed to preach the scriptures or read Preach or read the scriptures. So when you start saying all of life is worship, uh, you start losing proper biblical distinctions and you start making mistakes. In addition, God has set aside a special day for public worship, the Sabbath. That is for, and the biblical term, which we find in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, is holy convocations. Holy convocations. The word convocation simply refers to a public meeting of God's people. And if pagans got together, that would be a convocation. It's a a public meeting. The term holy indicates that this is a religious meeting for worship that is set apart from ordinary life. So the Bible clearly makes a distinction between all of life and public worship. a passage that assumes that public worship is set apart from everyday life and thus must be treated with carefulness and respect is Ecclesiastes 5, 1-2. Listen to this. Walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to him rather than to give the sacrifice of fools for they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, and let your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven, and you on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Uh, here's an analogy. Okay, The Queen of England just died a few days back. If you're going into a meeting with royalty, the king or queen of England, You're not going to go in there and tell crass jokes and be uncareful about how you speak. There's a certain protocol. Well, when we come into God's special presence in public worship, there has to be a certain reverence, a certain carefulness, a soberness that we don't have in everyday life. When we go to the place of worship, we must go with humility and the seriousness that such a holy endeavor deserves. It is time to set aside worldly and vain thoughts to focus on the sanctifying religious exercises before us. Now, that's perfectly fine in normal life if you want to think about, boy, I'm going to, I'm going to rebuild this engine and I'm going to paint my car. I'm going to fix my car up raw. Uh, I'm going to plant out my garden. I'm going to plant tomatoes over here and peppers over here or, or uh, you know, those kind of things. That's perfectly fine in everyday life but you don't want to be thinking about those things in public worship. We want to be thinking about God and Christ and the Bible and, and his precious salvation. This carefulness and sanctification of thought is symbolized to an extent by Aaron and his sons washing their feet and their hands before entering the most holy place, Exodus 3017 17-21. Public worship is special. Public worship, we come into the special presence of God. Now, God is obviously present everywhere. But think of the Old Testament. Think of the temple. The temple. You had outer courtyards. The Gentiles could go over here. Only the Jews could come into this courtyard. Then beyond the courtyard, only the priests could go. And the Levites. And then beyond that, only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. And that's the way we want to think about public worship. Even though, obviously, we're temples of the Holy Spirit, and the people of, wherever the people of God meet, where two or three meet in my name, Christ is there. That's true. Uh, but we want to think of worship as special. Further, while Scripture has nothing to say requiring Christian women to wear head coverings in the public square, it does command them to wear them in public worship. 1 Corinthians eleven three 3-16. Okay, I have friends, I have friends that think Christian women ought to wear head coverings all the time, especially in public. I don't think that's provable by Scripture. Uh, obviously, the Jews in the Old Testament well, even in the New Covenant period, women wore head coverings when they went out in public. That's true. But it's one thing to have a historical reality, and then it's another thing to require it or prove it and, and enforce it on women. But public worship is another matter. It's clearly taught that women are required to wear public head coverings in public worship, and it's not cultural. It's not based on the culture. We don't want you to offend the Greeks or the Romans who, by the way, didn't really care. It was a Jewish thing. This, of course, is due to the observance of angels during public worship, 1 Corinthians 11.10, which, if, if it's cultural, that would be kind of odd. It wouldn't make sense. The fact that Eve was created second as a helpmeet, under her husband's authority, 1 Corinthians 11.7-9, and the natural order first Corinthians 11:14, moreover, the Lord's Supper, which is a part of public worship, first Corinthians 11 eighteen and 20, is a time of special reflection and self-examination because during the partaking of the sacrament there's a special spiritual presence of Christ. and that's first Corinthians 11 eighteen to 29. Now, Christ lives in us by his spirit. The spirit of Christ, or the Holy Spirit, is inside of all of us, if you're regenerate. And Christ, being God, obviously, is everywhere in his divine nature. But there's a special presence of Christ in the Holy Supper. And um, John Calvin, uh, you know, Luther tried to explain it with this heresy of consubstantiation, where the... uh, physical aspects of Christ being, his elements are in and with and under the bread, which is ridiculous. It's a denial of the true humanity of Christ. Roman Catholics try to explain it in the sense that the bread actually becomes the body of Christ, which it also denies the true humanity of Christ, and it's kind of blasphemous. They worship the host. Uh, Calvin tried to explain it. Of course, he tried to have a mediating position toward Luther. Calvin explained it in the sense that there's a, se- there's a, a spiritual sense This is what Calvin says. There's a spiritual sense where you are spiritually transported to the throne room of God to be in the presence of Christ at the right hand of God the Father. Remember, Christ's body, his physical body, his human body is a real, true human body. It's a glorified body. But contrary to Lutheranism, his body does not share in the divine attributes. His body cannot be, his physical body cannot be everywhere at once. Obviously, it's God he is. So that's how Calvin tried to solve the problem. Either way, now a lot of Reformed people today say that he's just spiritually present with us in a special way in church. Calvin's view is kind of mystical. But the point is, is that public worship is special, and we enter into God's presence in a special, unique manner. So those are the definitions of the word. Um. I think we'll take a break because we're gonna. I want to talk the rest about the elements of worship, and we're going to talk about uh, we're going to talk about the elements of worship. And today we're just going to get through prayer. And uh, obviously, a great way to define worship is to look at how Scripture talks about the parts of worship. In the same way you talk about a person, well, a person has hands and arms and a head and etc. Well, worship, we learn about what worship consists of, what it is by looking at the parts of religious worship or Christian worship, and we'll do that in a moment. Uh, One of the best ways to define it and understand worship is to examine all the parts or elements that are authorized in Scripture. And we'll look at that in a moment. So we're just going to take a short break. Don't go anywhere. We're just going to take a short break, and then we're going to come back. Uh, Father, we thank you so much that, that you have Uh, caused us to believe in your dear son Jesus Christ through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit that you have brought us into your own family adopted us into your family through Christ and we are justified in your sight we thank you Lord we ask that you would teach us about worship the worship of you which is one of the most important things we do so help us understand it Lord help us to do it properly biblically and honor you with a true humble spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.